Right, so now we are going on into the Word of God and we shall start with the song. The choir is all set. As we take the song, For I'm Building a People of Power. Can we please stand? into the Lord's hands. Father, we surrender ourselves into your hands, Lord Father. Father, this is your church, and it is you who is building us up, Lord Father. Father God, that's what we sang, and that's what we mean, Lord Father. Father, take charge, take control of this church. Every brother, every sister in this church, Father God, you lead us forward, Lord Father. Father God, let us just look to you, Lord Father, for every step that we take, Lord Father. And I pray, Lord, that even as you speak to us this day, we will be attentive to that which you have for us this day, Lord. Thank you, Father. We give all glory to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Please take your seats. Now, it was in early 2014 that I desired to share a series of messages on the church based on the churches in the book of Revelation. So when I prayed about it, God clearly said no. Now, I'm not used to getting no as an answer. So like Paul, because my name is also Paul, I went to the Lord three or maybe four times and said, I want to share, I want to preach on the church. And God said no. So like Paul, I decided to stop asking. And so I left it like that. And as things happened, the leadership of the church decided that we would do a care cell study on the book of Revelation. So in late August, we started studying the book of Revelation, went on through 2015, up to February or March of 2016. Well, time went by, and I forgot my request to the Lord. Other messages came and other messages were delivered. And then, when 2019 was declared as the year of revival for the Bread of Life Fellowship, God spoke to me and said, the church needs revival. Speak from Revelation. So here I am. So at last the yes has come. 
See, it was a series of no's, but at last a yes comes. And so here I am. And I'm not used to, to sharing series. I am a guy who generally comes up and I share a one-time message, and that's it. The next time I come, it's a different message. It's a different theme. It's a different topic. I'm not one who generally uh, picks a series and then speaks on that. So to prepare me for this, sometime last year, God gave me the series on Jacob. Now remember, I started that as a one-time message. Okay, I knew it was easy to divide Jacob into the young Jacob, the not-so-young Jacob, the not-so-old Jacob, and the old Jacob. And I said, this is a one-time message, I'll do it. But as we went through it, you know, it, it became a series. And so it ended up as a three-part message. And that was uh, a training ground for me because I needed to keep a continuity. I needed to get deeper into the word in order to be able to pick up truths that are not seen superficially. And so now, here I am, and I'm going to share, starting today, a multi-part message, a multi-part study on the book of Revelation, mainly the churches in Revelation. It might be a seven-part message, it might be a 14-part message, I don't know, but I can already hear the groans. Okay, that's okay. You may groan, you may moan, but please listen and act upon what God is trying to tell us. The church worldwide needs revival. It's quite possible that this church needs revival. And it's more than probable that you and I, as the church, need revival. And therefore, this year being the year of revival, we are going to focus on the theme of revival in the church. So shall we open our Bibles to Revelation chapter 2? And we shall read the first seven verses. Revelations 2 one to seven. To the angel of the church of Ephesus write, these things says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your labor, your patience, and that you cannot bear those who are evil. And you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not, and have found them liars. And you have persevered and have patience, and have labored for my name's sake, and have not become weary. Nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, Repent and do the first works, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. Now this you have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has a ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life, 
which is in the midst of the paradise of God. Now, before we come to the actual study on the church at Ephesus and the message that was delivered to the church at Ephesus, let me set the record straight and make some things clear. Now, each letter that we see, starting with this and the subsequent seven letters, is addressed to a church. But the message in, all the, in each of these letters is to all the churches. So the address of each message is to a church, but the message in each of those letters is to all the churches. The message was applicable to the churches being established in those early days. And the message is still applicable in churches today. So don't ever assume that because these letters were written as early as the first century, it doesn't apply to us because we are people of the 21st century. It is just as applicable today, if not more, than it ever was in the past. The message is meant for individuals making up the church. Because every letter ends with one statement, to him who overcomes. It doesn't say to the church which overcomes. So there is a message to the church. There are commendations. There are points of condemnation. There are warnings. There are recommendations. And then, in the first three letters, you will see that the last verse actually states, he who has a year, let him hear. And then it goes on to say, he who overcomes. The last four letters, the order changes. He who overcomes will get something. And then, he who has a year, let him hear what the Spirit says. So there is a reason why there is this particular sequence of something coming first and something coming second, and how is it applicable across the churches. We start off with the first church, but we will progress and then link them up together as we go in further messages. Now, when I said that this message is meant for the individuals who make up the church, the first question we need to ask ourselves is, who makes up the church? Let me ask you that question. Who makes up that church? Everybody? I'd like you to turn to Acts chapter 2, verse 40 to 41. Acts chapter 2. That's the establishment of the church. The church first came into existence in Acts 2. So Acts chapter 2, verse 40 to 41 says this. And with many other words, he testified and exhorted them. That's Peter and then the rest of the apostles and all. Saying, be saved from this perverse generation. Then those who gladly received his word were baptized. And that day, about 3,000 souls were added to them. Go on to verse 46 and 47. 
So continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. That's the crucial line. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. So the church is made up of saved people. Anybody else, anyone who does not, I have to be blunt here. I know this is tough, but this is biblical fact, and I can't hide it. Because if I was to compromise on this, I will be like the Nicolaitans. Because in Ephesians, in the church to Ephesus, the letter, it states, you do not like the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. And one of the things about the Nicolaitans was they compromised. They brought the world. They did not want to hurt others. So if I have to say this one, I have to say it because I do not want to compromise and be counted with the Nicolaitans because what happens then is my future is not secure. And I refuse to do that. Okay, so please listen carefully. Very clearly it states, the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. And so the church of God is clearly made up of saved believers. So the message in the letters that we are going to study is to the to the churches, which is made up of born-again believers. And God expects every believer to listen carefully. In every letter it states, he who has a ear, let him hear. It doesn't say, those of you who wish to listen, hear me out. It is a direct command to the church. And it starts with one church, which is at Ephesus. It is for us as believers, as the church, to listen to what God says, to examine his or her own life, to revive that which is dead in our bodies, to make course corrections, and to be the church that God actually wants us to be. We are not an organization. We are the church, and God sets high standards for the church. Tough, isn't it? But it is biblical fact. I also want us to open our Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 17. For the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the end of those who do not obey the gospel of God? For the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God. Judgment is not going to start out there. You and I are first going to need to give an account of what we have done, 
of what we have been. So we need to be careful. So revival means getting back everything that belonged to you, that you deserve to have, and activate it in your life. And if that's what needs to be there for the church, that's what we need to revive in the church. A similar warning is also seen. We won't read it, but it's there in Ezekiel chapter 9, verses 1 to 6 where God actually gives the command to go and kill those who are not weeping and crying for the people of God. And then he says, it begins at my sanctuary. That's the way, that's the way verse 6 ends. It begins at my sanctuary. So now let's go back to the church at Ephesus. And, at, and the title that I have put for today's study is simply this, Revival in the Church, Restoring First Love. Revival in the Church, Restoring First Love. The letter begins by addressing the angel of the church at Ephesus, verse 1 of chapter 2, to the angel of the church at Ephesus write. So the letter begins by addressing the angel of the church at Ephesus, the word in the original Greek is agalos, which can be interpreted as either angel or messenger. The Greek word for angel and messenger are the same. It's the word agalos. Okay? So whether this angel that we read in almost all versions of the English Bible refers to a heavenly messenger, the angelic host, or to God's chosen leader in the church at Ephesus is not made clear, but has been the subject of countless debates amongst eminent theologians. But we won't get into that because that is yet to be sorted out. However, what is made absolutely clear in verse 1 is the fact of the authorship of the letter. It says, to the angel of the church at Ephesus, write, These things says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. Now if you go to chapter 1, verse 20, just a couple of verses above, in fact the previous verse. Okay, if you go to verse 20, there is an elaboration on the stars and the lampstands. It says, the mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands which you saw are the seven churches. So when you go back to Ephesians 2 verse 1, you see the seven lampstands and this letter is written by him who holds the seven stars. Verse 20 says that the seven stars are the angels. Who are these angels? Whether they're angelic host or God-appointed men is a different story. But God holds these stars. And he walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. And the lampstands are the churches. So God is walking right in the midst of his churches. 
So what does this tell us? This simply tells us that it is Jesus Christ himself who holds, who appoints, who controls, who empowers the leadership of the church throughout. Anywhere in the world, if there is a church of God, church of the living God, and somebody says that he or she owns that church, or this organization owns this church, they are wrong. Because the owner of the church worldwide, whether it was in Asia Minor at that point of time or over time, the owner of the church worldwide is God, Jesus Christ alone. None of us claim ownership. Every one of us here who is in the church is meant to be a worker in that church. It is God who is walking in the midst of the churches. It is God who is protecting the churches. It is God who provides for the churches. It is God who sustains the churches. And if anybody thinks that it is run by men and the church would fall because X, Y, or Z is not there, is actually questioning the sovereign authority of God. Because it is God who owns, it is God who appoints, it's God who empowers, it's God who anoints, it's God who runs the church. The lampstands represent the church. Now, in the King James Version, it is referred to as candlestick. But apparently, the best translation of the original Greek word, which is luknia, okay, luknia comes, or is translated, is best translated as lampstand. Now, a lampstand, now assume for a minute that this is a lampstand. It isn't, but let's assume. A lampstand does not have light of its own. The lampstand holds the light. A candlestick holds the light. The candlestick by itself doesn't have light. A lampstand by itself does not have light. It simply means that if God is walking amongst the candles, the lampstands, which are the churches, the light has to be provided in those lampstands from somewhere else. Okay, and we know from the Gospel of John, chapter 8, verse 12, where Jesus says, and John quotes him, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. So Jesus Christ is the light that needs to be placed on the lampstand. So if there were seven lampstands that we see in Revelation, Jesus Christ is the light that needs to be placed on every one of those lampstands. So if we are a church which does not portray only Jesus Christ, we are in darkness. Because the job of the church, the church is a lampstand, full stop. And the lampstand has to portray, has to carry the light. And the light has to bring light in an area of darkness. 
If you do not have Jesus Christ in the church, there is no light in the church. However sophisticated the church looks like. So it is the duty of every church to portray, to display only one face, and that is the face of Jesus Christ. Not anything else, not anybody else. Ships at sea, stormy seas, at least in the past, now we have new technology, but at least in the past, would look for lighthouses would look at a distance and see, is there a lighthouse? Because the lighthouse indicates a couple of things. That's number one, hope. There's land. And number two, also be careful because land means rocks. Okay, but there is a lighthouse. The lighthouse may be a tall structure, but the lighthouse is useless if the light does not burn. For the ships to recognize it as a lighthouse, the light has to burn, and the light has to burn far and wide. So too with the church. If there is a church which does not have the light of Christ, it's meaningless. It doesn't make any sense to have such a church. And so Christ is telling the church right there, I am he, the one who's writing this letter to you. I am he who is walking in the midst of you. I am the light and you are the lampstand. That's the authorship which Christ is establishing at that point straight away. Now what's the message for us? We need to ask ourselves, are we portraying Christ? You and I call ourselves the church. Are we the church only on Fridays? I'm not talking about the collective us. I'm talking about me. What about tomorrow? Okay, tomorrow I will be the church because early will I seek thee is there. What about Sunday? When I go back to work, am I the church? Am I portraying Christ? Am I displaying Christ? Or is my life a life of compromise like the Nicolaitans? And then I do what everybody does. I do sneaky stuff. I lie. I swindle. I cheat. Is that what I'm doing? And everybody knows that you are supposed to portray the church. So is this the church? The church that lies, the church that cheats, the church that swindles. I'm not talking about this, a building church. I'm talking about each one of us. To somebody outside, who are you? Are you portraying Christ? So the first thing we need to do if we want to see revival in this church, is to shine the light of Christ and his light only. And we'll have to take a call on that. Next comes verses 2 and 3, which is the classic commendation that Christ makes of the church. Let's read verses 2 and 3. The classic commendation that Christ makes to the church at Ephesus. 
I know your works, your labor, your patience, and that you cannot bear those who are evil. And you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not, and have found them liars. And you have persevered and have patience and have labored for my name's sake and have not become weary. These are commendations. I like what you're doing. This is what Christ is saying. I like what you're doing. Tremendous words of encouragement. If Christ was to come here and say that to us, we would be encouraged. We would jump for joy. Yes, we are doing something good. We are doing something right. And that is what the, Ephesian, the, the church at Ephesus felt at that point of time. You see, Ephesus was not the biggest church in that area. It was not the most important one either. And I'll tell you why. Jerusalem was right there, not too far away. The church at Antioch, the church at Jerusalem, these, had more, these were churches with more power. But the first letter written was to the church, not at Jerusalem, but at Ephesus. Geographically, it was the closest church to the island of Patmos where John was in exile. Okay, so probably in the sense of delivery of that one, of the letter, it would be the easiest to get to. And the rest of the churches were in a, in a, in a kind of oval shape, a sequence, which follows after Ephesus. Okay? But when you look at Ephesus itself, it was a tremendously important city. Ephesus was a huge city. The church was not the biggest there, but the city was absolutely huge. And it was a hugely idolatrous place. Let me tell you something about Ephesus. The city no longer exists, but its ruins are found about three kilometers south to a place called Selsuk, a city that exists in the Ijmer province of Turkey. And those ruins of Ephesus are a great tourist attraction and a money-spinning area for Turkey. Now, in the first century AD, Ephesus was a hugely prosperous city. It was a commercial city. It had wide roads. There are pictures which show the width of the roads. Okay. It was an important port. And it was a thriving area of business. It was also a city that was openly practicing idol worship. Their most famous temple was the temple of Artemis, and the goddess name was Diana. Making and selling statues of Artemis or Diana was big business in Ephesus. Adultery, immorality were normal lifestyle patterns in Ephesus. Nobody thought twice about it. Ephesus had one of the biggest libraries of that region. It was called the Library of Celsus. And apparently those ruins of that library with tall columns, they still exist. It had a huge open-air theater that could seat about 25,000 people. Okay, talking about first century, place for 25,000 people. That's how big Ephesus was as a city. From all accounts that you read about Ephesus, historical Ephesus, we recognize that Ephesus was an absolutely important city. 
And it was into this idolatrous city that Paul came to in AD 51 or 52. If you read Acts chapter 18, let's just get to that. We are studying that in our cells at the moment. So it should not be difficult for us to identify where Acts is. Acts chapter 18. Eighteen to twenty-one. So Paul still remained a good while. Then he took leave of the brethren and sailed for Syria, and Priscilla and Aquila were with him. He had his hair cut off at Sencria, for he had taken a vow, and he came to Ephesus and left them there. But he himself entered the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to stay a longer time with them, he did not consent, but took leave of them, saying, I must by all means keep this coming feast in Jerusalem, but I will return to you, God willing. And he sailed from Ephesus. So Paul went to Ephesus, this hugely idolatrous city. Now, Paul always liked to go to big cities. Okay, that's where he always established the preaching that uh, he is famous for. He, never, he didn't focus on the smaller places. He went to the big places and then let others focus on the smaller places. Okay? So it was into this city that in 51 AD, Paul entered and he stayed there a short while. However, he left behind Aquila and Priscilla. And joining them, if you read a little lower down from verse 24, you will find that there came a guy called Apollos. And Apollos was strong in the word. And towards the end of chapter 18, you will read that it says that he was able to stand and defend the faith. He needed some course, he needed some uh, fine-tuning because he did not know about uh, various forms of baptism. He was still talking about the baptism of John. Aquila and Priscilla corrected him, but then he went on. And he was there in Ephesus. Now later, in chapter 19, we will see that Paul returns to Ephesus and he stays there and teaches for two years. He worked miracles. It is in chapter 19 we read about the handkerchiefs which Paul touched and prayed over and they were used to heal. The miracle cloth. That whole story comes from Ephesus where Paul was for about two years. And after some time, Timothy comes to that place. Tychicus comes to that place. And these were all the big, big leaders of the church. The people who could preach and teach fiery sermons, strong messages, directly from the word. They've already been tested by the Bereans. These were the people who established the church at Ephesus. So Ephesus, the church at Ephesus, had a pretty strong foundation. It was not a fly-by-night operation. It was a well-established church, though it was still small compared to other places. So this church flourished. In Acts 19, verse 17, we actually read the statement. The, we, we read this. The name of the Lord Jesus was magnified at Ephesus. 
The teachings were so powerful that the business of the idol makers was affected and they actually caused a riot in the city to get rid of these people because commercial business was being affected. People were stopping, were, were, were turning away from the, uh, the temple of Artemis. They stopped buying statues of Diana. And that was affecting business, local business. Economy was going down. The church was flourishing. It is to this church that the first letter is written. Indeed, this church was doing a lot, and Jesus Christ acknowledged it. You read verse 2 and 3 again, and you will see he acknowledged it. He said they were doing a lot. They worked hard. They persevered. They were patient. They were able to discern and identify false teachers and liars. They did not weary of doing good for the Lord. In fact, if we go to verse 6 of Revelations chapter 2, what do we get there? It's a story about the Nicolaitans. Verse 6. But this you have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Historians will tell us that the Nicolaitans loved to bring the world into the church, thus compromising their lifestyle. They wanted to have their feet in the church and in the world. And they tried to enforce this lifestyle in the church. It is said some theologians suspect and suggest that the Nicolaitans are a sect which actually followed a person called Nicholas. And who is this Nicholas? Historical tracings suggest that he was one of those seven people chosen to serve on the tables along with Stephen. If you go to early Acts, we know the time when the apostles had to choose seven other people to serve. Stephen was one. Stephen became the most famous one because of his immediate martyrdom. But if you look at the six other names, there is one name called Nicholas. And some theologians suggest that these Nicolaitans are followers of that Nicholas. And therefore, because he was established in the early church, they used his authority. They called it the apostolic authority. To say that by apostolic authority, we say that this is what you should do. By apostolic authority, we will bring the world into the church. Okay, so they were using, because Nicholas was there in the early church, he was no longer here, but at that particular point, they used his authority. And these were, this is the claims made about the Nicolaitans. We will see more about it in one of the uh, future churches also. So the question for, for us to answer right now is this. Are we like that? It's, it's, it's okay about the church at Ephesus, but we need to boil it down and say, what about us? The issue today is about us. 
Is TBOLF like this? Are we laboring hard for Jesus Christ? Do we persevere in doing God's work? Do we readily search the scriptures and find out whether teachings and preachings from this pulpit are true or false? Do we do what we have to do without becoming weary? Maybe we do, maybe we don't. But that's a question we, each of us has to answer. Are we doing as much as the church at Ephesus? We also need to ask ourselves, are we allowing the world to contaminate the church? Are we bringing principles and practices from the world and saying, let's do this in the church. Let's become more popular. I used to attend a church in India, smaller than this, and uh, we had a preacher. And uh, that preacher, of course, used to, like in Bread of Life, used to give opportunities to other members to share the word of God. And so I have had the opportunity of standing and sharing the word of God over there. And then there came a point of time when they suddenly decided that they are going to live stream their messages. You know what live stream is, isn't it? Okay, today morning there was a killing in New Zealand. It was live streamed. Okay, so this pastor decided that they are going to live stream the messages. Two things happened immediately. Number one, he got himself a coat. So he was now suited and booted. Number two, he was the only preacher. From that point onwards, I have not seen a single other person. Even when I go on holidays, he gives me a nice tap on the back and the pat on the back and says, very nice to see you. When are you going back? I have never shared the word of God in that church, in that particular church, okay, after the live streaming started. You see, are we allowing the world to enter into the church? We need to ask ourselves that question. Have we compromised our standards and our values so as to have one leg in the church and one leg in the world. If we are doing that, we are not having one leg in the church and one leg in the world. We are having one leg in one grave and another leg in another grave. That's what we are doing. Okay. So after this commendation, which was really good about the church at Ephesus, comes the condemnation. Okay. Verse 4. Nevertheless, but I have this against you, that you have left your first love. That's Jesus Christ telling the church. I have this against you, that you have left your first love. What is first love? Turn with me to Matthew chapter 22, verses 37. To 39. Matthew 22, 37 to 39. Jesus said to him, You shall love 
the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. At this point, I would actually encourage all of us to read the 13 verses of 1 Corinthians chapter 13 when you get home and read the chapter as a family, not individually. Sit together and read it clearly. But let me just read four verses from that set of 13, verses 4 to 7 of 1 Corinthians chapter 13. And, I, and I'm picking up the New Living Translation uh, 1996 version. It's different from the other version. Love is patient and kind. Love is not jealous or boastful or proud or rude. Love does not demand its own way. Love is not irritable. It keeps no record of when it has been wronged. Love is never glad about injustice, but rejoices whenever the truth wins out. Love never gives up. Love never loses faith. Love is always hopeful, and love endures through every circumstance. That is the New Living Translation of these four verses. Now, what happened in the church at Ephesus was that this intense love that they had for God had been left behind. The church had stopped looking at the people of God or, you know, uh, looking at the children of the, of the living God and had stopped loving them. People were just people. They were not children of the only living God. And so, so the church stopped dealing with people in love. The church stopped exhibiting its intense love for God. Now, the first character of intense love, which is what you have in first love, is you will do what the other person wants you to do. I should ask this to couples. It doesn't matter whether you're a young couple or an old couple. Or a yet-to-be couple. Okay. When you love somebody, you will do everything you can for that somebody. And God is asking us the same thing. And God is asking the church the same thing. That's what you have left. You have left your first love. Where is your obedience? Where is your unquestioning faith? Where is your unquestioning dependence on me? The church at Ephesus started focusing on activities, on lip service, on legal interpretation of doctrine. Now, this is not a new thing among God's people. 
Turn to me to Ezekiel chapter 33. Verses 30 to 31. Ezekiel 33 verses 30 to 31. And this is what we read. As for you, son of man, the children of your people are talking about you beside the walls and in the doors of the houses. And they speak to one another, everyone saying to his brother, Please come and hear what the word is that comes from the Lord. So they come to you as people do. They sit before you as my people and they hear your words, but they do not do them. For, their, for with their mouth they show much love, but their hearts pursue their own gain. Okay, this is quoted in the Old Testament. And this is exactly what was happening at Ephesus. They could speak loud. But their hearts were pursuing other things. That same story is being repeated in churches again and again, not just at Ephesus. We speak loud. But we have different agendas. Now, let's look at verse 4 again. Nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Remember, the word that is used is, you have left, not you have lost. Lost can be accidental. It can be unintentional. Leave, left, is often intentional. You want to leave something. You want to leave somebody. You want to, you are deciding to do it. It's your choice. But when you lose something, you have misplaced it. It's, you didn't even think about it. And suddenly you realize it's not there. God doesn't say that you lost your first love. He said you left your first love. That means you intentionally changed your focus. It's not something that crept into you and you lost it, but you left it. Christ in his letter to the church at Ephesus was reminding them that they needed to get back that first love that they had sacrificed. John 3.16 states, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. God so loved the world that he gave his son to hang on that cross. 1 John 3.16 by this we know love, because he laid down his life for us, and we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. Sacrificial love, not selfish love, not love that puts 
myself, what do I get out of this? What's in it for me? Name, fame, whatever. Okay? The love that we find that God keeps talking about is never selfish love. Selfish love is what we have created in this world. What God talks about all the time is always sacrificial love. And that's what he says. That's what you have left. You have left your first love. God is all about love. Jesus Christ willingly walked to that cross because he loved you and me. And so, what did God want the church at Ephesus to do? He said, in verse 5, the first part, Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the first works. Remember, repent, and do. Those are the crucial three words. Remember where you were. Repent of your sins and do. Don't simply sit back and say, oh, I remember and I repent and that's thank you very much. Okay, the action, the do is very important. Do the first works. This is almost exactly the same thing that the prodigal son did. Sitting in that pigsty, he remembered where he was where his father was, what was his position. He remembered how he messed it up. He remembered what all he did, and he repented. I shall seek forgiveness. He repented, and he didn't continue sitting in the pigsty and say, okay, I'll wait for my dad to come. He got up and walked, messy as he was. He got up and he walked. That's the do. So there is a remember, there is a repent, and there is a do. And that's something for us now. When we need to look back on our own lives, or when we look back at the church, we as a body of Christ, we need to remember what God has done for us. We need to remember everything that God has meant to us. Who was God in our life before we had money in the bank? And then, when we recognize that we have fallen, we repent. And we don't simply sit there having repented, we go back and do what we were doing. Because most of us, when we accept Christ, we are on fire for Christ. And then, it goes out somewhere. Okay, maybe you light somebody else's fire and then your fire goes out. Okay? Whatever it is. So we need to ask ourselves a question. So the question is now, the church at Ephesus lost the first love, left their first love. What about us? Have we left it behind? Where is our first love? Now it doesn't end there. Because God gave a warning to the church at Ephesus if they chose to disobey him. He said, you can sort out your problem. Remember, repent, and do. Suppose you choose to disobey. What's the warning? Chapter 2, verse 5, second part, B. Or else I will come to you quickly 
and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. God was simply saying, you guys don't change. I'm closing the church at Ephesus. No more Ephesus church. I am coming and removing the lampstand. There is no church. Finished. But God, you told us that we were hard workers, we were persevering, we did this, we hated the Nicolaitans, we, we did so many good things. Everything has been brought to zero because you have left your first love behind. Doesn't seem fair, does it? We're not talking about fairness here. We're talking about serving God completely. Loving God completely. You see, God demands that if we have to be his church, we need to do things his way and not ours. He is the head of the church, and we need to take all our instructions, our directions, our cues from him and him alone. I'm sure some of you noticed that I was like this. Okay, and in some of your minds it would have been that this is the sign of the infinite. Inf what is that? Infinity? Okay, whatever. Okay. No, I'm, it's just accidental that I'm putting this together. Okay. So the first character that we need to rediscover in the church is love. There are seven more, six more characters coming. But the first thing we need to revive the church is love. Love God, love God's people. Now what is the reward? If you remember, if you repent, you do, you get back to your first love, what's the reward? Now we actually we should never focus on the reward. We need to do what we have to do because the reward is automatic. When God says he will give you something, he will give you that. We don't need to focus on the reward. Okay, that is not, you don't do something because of the reward. You do something because you love the Lord. Okay, and, the, and God said, love must return. And once that is done, the reward automatically follows. So what is that reward anyway, if you want to know it? It's the last, it's the... Uh, it's there in verse 7. He who has a ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. I will give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. So where is this tree of life? From Revelation, which is the 66th book of the Bible, we go to the first book of the Bible, which is Genesis. So if you can open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 2. From Revelation 2, we go to Genesis 2. Which simply shows you that the Bible is one interconnected book. Because your answers for Revelation 2 comes in Genesis 2. Genesis 2, verses 8 and 9. The Lord God...
planted a garden eastward in Eden, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground of the, the Lord God made every tree grow that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was also in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So that's where the tree was. And God had told Adam, you can eat the fruit of every tree except the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So Adam was eating of the tree of life. There's no problem there. Eve ate. Adam ate. The only tree, the fruit they were not supposed to eat was of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But then what happened? Adam and Eve sinned. They, eat, they ate of the wrong fruit. Okay, Adam and Eve sinned. And so God had to punish them. In Genesis chapter 3 verse 23, we see the last reference to the tree of life. So he drove out the man. And he placed cherubim at the east of the Garden of Eden and a flaming sword which turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. So the tree of life was now barred for the rest of us. No person after Adam and Eve could eat of the tree of life. There's this flaming sword which protects it and we cannot go anywhere near it, if at all. There are people who are still searching for it. Huh? <laughs> They're going to all kinds of gardens and looking for the tree of life, elixir of life, you know, all kinds of things. But according to verse 7 in Ephesians, in the book, uh, in Revelation, the church, the letter to the church at Ephesus, Jesus Christ is going to reward us with this same tree. When we become overcomers and we practice daily our first love, because that's the only thing that's been missing in the church at Ephesus. You have left your first love. So when we get that back, what are we getting? We're getting the tree of life. Let's turn to Revelation chapter 22. We're coming to the close. Revelation chapter 22, verses 1 and 2. And he, that's an angel, showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding from the throne of God and of the Lamb, in the middle of its street, and on either side of the river was the tree of life, which bore twelve fruits each tree yielding its fruit every month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. So this is the tree. There it is. It never disappeared. We're getting it back. If we are overcomers. If we can return to our first love. So in conclusion, what does this really mean for us? How does the letter to the church at Ephesus matter to us at all? It is time for us to look at our own lives to see whether we have left our first love. Who is God to you? Who are people to you?
it is time that we recognize what God is speaking to the churches. And to this church at Ephesus, he says, you are doing a lot of good, but there is one thing you lack, and you have left your first love. So we need to ask ourselves, maybe we are doing a lot of good. Maybe we aren't. We need to look at that. As a person, maybe I am doing, maybe I am not. But what about first love? Where do I stand when it comes to first love? Shall we stand even as we close the service? And we need to ask ourselves, are we doing a lot of things, but have we really lost, left behind the first love? Or do we really have it? Is it time to remember? Is it time to repent? Is it time to return to our first love? He who has a ear, let him hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. Brothers and sisters, be an overcomer. Look at your own life. Remember from where you have fallen. Repent and do what God expects you to do. For then you shall eat of the tree of life and you shall be granted life eternal in God's paradise in God's presence God bless you praise the Lord praise the Lord once again let's put our hands together for God What a wonderful reminder. If you look at book of, uh, Rev that same book of Revelation 2, verse 2. Revelation 2, verse 2. It says, I know your work, your labor, your patience, and that you cannot bear those who are evil. And you have tested those who says they are apostles and are not and found them liars now the opening statement of this verse say I know your work this statement seems to be very comforting at the same time it appears to be so distressing so worrisome but how can this type of statement that is so comforting at the same time be so distressing? The answer to that question depends on your work. Depends on what? On your work. If your work honor the rising Savior, it will comfort you. If your labor glorify his name. When he says, I know your work, you will smile. You will rejoice when what you do reflects the Spirit of God. When what you do reflects the first love that you have for the Christ, that very first time that you accept Christ. 
You will rejoice. You will be happy. But is your work up to that standard? God is saying today that he knows your work. He knows what you are doing. If your work has not measured up to that standard, you need to wake up. You need to listen to what the Spirit is saying. So when he says, I know your work, we will be rightly distressed when that our work is not measuring up to that standard. We will know that we will be exposed because God is talking that he knows your work. So God knows your work. I want you to hold on to this. Revelation, that same book of Revelation 2, verse 7. He who has here, let him hear what the Spirit is saying. Today, the kind of service that you offer to God, have you abandoned that first love that you had at the first time? Is that fire in you still burning brightly in your heart? Is that fire burning to glorify God or is burning to glorify yourself? Do we come to service of the Lord with anticipation that we will meet the rising sun? Is that your motive? Is that what you have in mind? Don't abandon the first love. Or do we think the service is just Friday, Friday routine? Are we passionate of spending time with God so that we, we keep remembering ourselves about that first love? Brethren, don't allow that first love to die in you. Don't allow the spirit to die in you. Let the fire keep burning. The fire of the first love, let it keep burning. Not just to burn, but it has to burn brightly. And I pray God will help us in Jesus' name. Let us close our eyes. Father, we want to appreciate you once again. We glorify your holy name. For you reminding us about the first love today. For you remembering, reminding us that, Lord, we have to revive ourselves. We have to go back to that first love. Father, we have heard the message this afternoon. Father, let this message be firmly rooted in our heart in the mighty name of Jesus. That spirit that keeps reminding us that God knows our work. If your work is not up to the standard, I pray that the spirit of God will revive you. And bring you back to the fold in the mighty name of Jesus. Thank you, everlasting God. Your son that you have used these days. We pray for more anointing in the mighty name of Jesus. When you fire a gun, you have to reload him. Father, reload him in the mighty name of Jesus. With more word in this series that he has chosen. Father, reload him in the mighty name of Jesus. To the glory of God and to the honor of God. Reload him in Jesus' name. And I pray everything we have heard today, as it has gone through our right ear, it shall not pump out through the left ear in the mighty name of Jesus.
Blessed be your holy name. I pray what God has done in your life this afternoon shall remain permanent in Jesus' name. The word that has been planted in your heart will grow so that your work will remain in the fold of God in the mighty name of Jesus. As we go, Father, go with us in Jesus' name. This week is another beautiful week. Father, take control of everything in Jesus' name. Once again, we remember those that are down with fever, that Lord, you will visit them in the mighty name of Jesus. We pray for Brother Rajesh and Sister Jasmine family. Father, uphold them in the mighty name of Jesus. Be with that family in Jesus' name and glorify your holy name. They have gone to India safely. Let them return safely back here in the mighty name of Jesus. Lord, once again as we go, let your presence go ahead of us in Jesus' name. When next we meet here next week or tomorrow for excellent men and for good women, it shall be testimony to your glory in the mighty name of Jesus. Thank you, almighty God. For the rest of this week's program, take control in the mighty name of Jesus. Take over in Jesus' name and let your name be glorified. Thank you, almighty God. In Jesus' name, we have prayed. Let us share the grace together in fellowship. Yes, for Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us now and forevermore. Amen. Surely, God's goodness and mercy shall follow us all the days of our life and we shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever and ever. Amen. And we shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever and ever. Amen. God bless you.